I went over to my grandmother's house and I'm thinking she's calling me over because, you know, it's my birthday week and maybe she wants to do something. And I just told her I'd gotten laid off and she was like, yes, I know. I called you over here so I could talk with you one-on-one face-to-face and say, if you don't go for it in the freelance world, if you don't go for it and try to make something of your filmmaking career right now, why are you even in L.A.? <laughs> I was like, like, basically just like, hey, if you're not going to take this seriously now, you have a chance right now to do something with this free time. And if you don't take it, just get out of the city. Forget trying to become a filmmaker. Like, it's never going to happen if you don't try it now. And I was like, oh, well, thank you, Grandma. <laughs> Welcome to First Time Go. I'm Benjamin Ducek. That's Matthew S. Robinson telling an inspirational story that came from getting laid off on his birthday. I went into this podcast telling him I was looking forward to it, and I was. But even though my expectations for this episode were high, they were exceeded, if that's possible. It's the type of episode I wanted to make when I started the podcast, and it's all thanks to the brilliance of Matthew. The care that he put into his films is demonstrated by the care he put into participating on this podcast. We talk about how he got into film because of James Cameron, the struggles of making indie movies, why people select comedy as a genre to start, how festivals can improve, his film Bloody Bloody Coda, what he recommends for future filmmakers, and who he wants to highlight. I felt like I had a better understanding of independent film after talking with Matthew, and I think you will too. Enjoy. When I first read your X account, I thought just guys just brilliant with these amazing takes on films, old films, new films, filmmaking. And I'm so glad you were able to join me for the podcast. So James Cameron sparked your desire to get into filmmaking. Is that right? That is true. That is true. I was living in Cincinnati at the time. And I, for the longest part of my life, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I was very committed to it. I had it all figured out. I was going to write for the Smithsonian and for National Geographic, and I was going to go around studying different cultures around the world and doing archaeology. And uh, my parents took me to an archaeology event, an underwater archaeology event, archaeology event hosted by James Cameron at the Aronoff Center. And I was definitely the youngest person in that crowd. <laughs> and I kept raising my hand to ask all of these like detailed archaeology questions, and James and his team were probably just so psyched to have this young kid who was just hyped up about archaeology but over the course of the presentation and their answers i started to kind of think oh filmmaking a creative process that sounds really interesting <laughs> i kind of ended up switching my uh pursuits which i kind of feel bad for i you know i went as an archaeologist and james was probably really excited about that and he kind of converted me into a filmmaker <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's a cool way. I've met him twice, actually. I mean, there's no way he remembers who I am, but I saw him speak at the Aronoff Center, and then a long time ago, when I was still in college, I went to the first annual 3D Awards, 3D Visual Arts Awards, that uh, James Cameron was obviously there for. It was the first year Avatar came back, and of course, Avatar won almost everything. Avatar and the Disney gerbil film that's probably been forgotten, G-Force, were the major winners of that awards show. And I got to talk to James Cameron very briefly afterwards. He was shaking hands to everyone, and I was like, oh, thanks. This was a really cool event. And he was like, 
<laughs> I was like, oh, so I've met him twice. No, he definitely does not know who I am. <laughs> it was a cool, it was a cool way to get get into filmmaking. But I'm guessing he will. So did did you go into film school after that, and or did you just start filming, or what happened after you decided, hey, gonna career change? Yeah, you know, I I pretty much I was about twelve around that time. So after that, I started to transition into creative writing, screenwriting, filmmaking. And I decided to go to film school. I was I went to Santa Monica Community College first. And then because I, I didn't have fantastic grades coming out of high school, I kind of this is a lesson for any young high schoolers listening. I didn't take the first two years. I haven't had didn't take the first two years of my high school experience seriously enough. And it caused me to basically uh, have a really bad GPA. And so I ended up going to Santa Monica Community College, getting my grades up, making the honor roll all semesters in Santa Monica. I was focused then. And then I, I transferred to uh, Pepperdine University, where I was in family history there, and went into the media production major. So it was always a plan to do it. I, I, I mean, I don't think that you have to go to film school to become a good filmmaker. I think some of the best filmmakers didn't. But for me... As someone who didn't get a lot of experience growing up with like real heavy duty cameras, I felt it was important for me to really learn the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. And you were just making films, like making films on your own? Yeah. At the time, Pepperdine had this wonderful program called The Random Show and a bunch of other shows. It's completely overhauled how it's done now, but which that's a topic for another discussion. But yeah, it was this show called The Random Show. I worked on a show called Man Waves. Uh, which is kind of like The View, but with men, and then uh, a couple other kind I of programs. I want to see that, actually. <laughs> so is this guys going around, like, giving about, like, sports, like, whatever? Pretty much, pretty much. And we always had a uh, we had a section where a woman would come out. The show was actually, our head writer was a woman, and our head director was a woman, funny enough. So at the end of every episode, a uh, Ty Hansen was our wonderful show runner. Uh, and the kind of director, but uh, she brought in women at the end of each episode and the women would come on and they would basically tell us, hey, you're wrong. Or actually, I agree with you. And they would give the, the you know, the kind of female perspective on our male dominated conversation, which I think was a nice counterweight to all the uh, testosterone swimming around yeah. there. <laughs> so it was cool. I was a host on that. I was a writer on that show. It gave me a lot of experience working in a writer's room, working with a showrunner with deadlines. It was a really, really cool time to kind of get some hands-on experience where you, it was safe to fail, which is what I think the biggest thing about film school is. It's a safe opportunity to make crap. And I made a lot of crap in college and in high school. I made some good stuff, too. I, I did, you know, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I made some really good stuff that I'm still proud of to this day. But I also made a lot of crap that will probably never see the light of day. <laughs> and, you know, that's how, but I worked on the short films and I wrote, I directed, sometimes I just was an AD on them or an actor on them, which I'm not an actor. It's just limited resources caused me to have to be one sometimes. And uh, gave me a lot of experience and knowing how to work a lot of different crew positions, which have definitely helped me as uh, a burgeoning filmmaker. <laughs> so on the podcast, I've discussed whether to make shorts, not make shorts, People disagree, but ultimately most think you should be making as many films as you can. And it sounds like that's what you did. I believe you made over 90 films by the age of 25. Were they genre specific or was it all genres? 
And what did you take away from, I mean, I think you said like, Hey, I made crap. I made some good movies. Is that sort of what you took away from it? It's like, you know, just improving even by 1% each time. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, it was definitely a war of attrition with me fighting my worst filmmaking instincts with, you know, growing as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a director. You know, in college, it was a lot of comedy. It was a lot of comedy because that's just what most people did, at least at Pepperdine, that was the culture. Most people make comedically tilted films. And a lot of people from Pepperdine went on to work in comedies. Uh, Seth Allison, uh, Conrad Flynn, Kyle Health, you know, those are actors who've been doing a lot of work comedically. Jeff Loveness, who became an Emmy-winning writer on Jimmy Kimmel, and uh, Rick and Morty, and he wrote Ant-Man and the Wasp 3. Those all came out with Pepperdine in that cohort. Uh, Michelle Weaver, uh, a tremendous actress. So it was, but we were still very comedy focused. And I, so I did a lot of comedy films during that time, which is funny because I actually don't, I, I like directing comedy, but it's not my favorite genre to direct. And I think maybe because I got sick of it during college, <laughs> because I started to really want to talk about subjects that I just couldn't put a comedic tilt on, subjects I needed, I, I wanted to explore in drama and sci-fi and horror. And it, it became kind of a little frustrating because I couldn't do that all the time with the majority of the way projects were formed. So I started towards the end of my college career to start transitioning into thriller and mystery and horror and sci-fi and with mixed results, but the ones that really hit connected with people. And after I got out of college, I started firmly moving more into that direction. And even though I've done some comedies since then, some that have been very successful, I definitely my genre definitely tends more towards the dramatic, the sci-fi, the scary or suspenseful historical fiction since then. I know it's a long-winded answer for that, but that's kind of how it evolved. I've, I've done it all, but I certainly have my favorites. <laughs> Did you notice among your peers that a lot of them were capable in comedy? So what I'm thinking, you know, I talk with a lot of guests that have sort of a comic background, and I'm wondering whether there's something specific about comedy, like improvisation, ability, the ability to speak on your feet, the ability to like handle different situations that makes a person succeed in creative arts. Like, did you meet people that were just like recluses, like didn't have like social skills or was it more just a lot of the pe your peers were like a co comedic and like had high social IQ, if that makes sense? No, that makes, makes sense. I, I think there was definitely a lot of people who were introverted and reclusive in the film department, for sure. Pepperdine in general was a pretty reclusive culture. A lot of the students, if they lived in Los Angeles, they wouldn't even stay on campus sometimes on long weekends. They would just go back home. They were constantly, constantly you get to Saturday at Pepperdine and it was like a ghost town, you know, where most colleges, everyone's partying. But I think the comedy... I think one of the reasons people did so much comedy is because of the instant gratification that comedy allows. And when you are a young filmmaker or actor, you want to know if you're doing a good job. And the fastest way to know if you're doing a good job of performance is that you're supposed to be funny and then people laugh. I don't think, and I know I just rattled off so many great comedic actors, but I honestly think that most people go to comedy early on because they it's the easiest to get quick feedback on. And I, and I don't, I don't say that as a begrudging way or looking down the genre, 
I think comedy is one of the hardest things to do and particularly hard to do well. Even myself, when I'm writing something, a more dramatic story, I'll put a joke in the first few pages because it's my indicator, whether I'm doing a film or a theater play, that people are, are tuned in. They're, they're getting the vibe of the show. They're, they're into the characters. But I think we had a lot of people who really, their best talent didn't lie in comedy, but they gravitated towards it because it was such a communal gratification. Wow. That's an amazing answer. I've never heard it put that way, but I think you're right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense in terms of comedy. That's that's wild. That, that's a great answer. So Bloody Bloody Coda, how did you get from making a lot of shorts, graduating school to this particular film? Yeah. Bloody Bloody Coda has been in my head since about 2015, 2016. I came up with the idea while watching this movie called Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn, which is to my grandmother, Sylvia, it's the scariest movie ever made. And in that movie, the woman is blind and people invade her home. And I was like, oh, this is such a great concept. I love old movies like this. I love these kind of thrillers. And I was like, what would be an interesting spin on this? And I thought, well, once if someone couldn't speak, but I didn't want it to be someone who was mute because then it felt, I felt like there needed to be a choice that the person could speak if they wanted to, but they didn't want to for some reason. And that kind of evolved into me making it an opera singer who had vocal cord surgery and she could speak if she wants to, she could yell for help. But if she did that, that's the end of her opera career. So now there's a choice over it. It's just like, how can I escape the situation without having to sacrifice my career? And I thought that just added another layer of tension to that. And so I worked on the script for several years and then eventually got to the point where I was finally like, okay, I think I'm in a good place to make this. And uh, I went for it. <laughs> and it's just such an inventive, unique horror film with so many little gems that I loved. Like you had the main character listening to a murder podcast and an opera singer who can't speak. How did you determine the medium itself? Like, did you ever think that it was going to be a feature? You know, it's funny. I I definitely thought about making it a feature. You know, it's just so hard to raise money and get money for features. Like, well, let me write this, the short version of this first. And then if people like this, maybe they'll come up to me and say, hey, you know, maybe you can make this into a feature. And I've, some producers have seen it. And they were like, my biggest complaint is that it's too short. It's like you're jam packing a lot into 10 minutes. It's like, this needs to be a feature length story. I, I need to get way more into this character. And Jinya Blaneau, who's the awesome Gail, I would love to do it again as a feature with her in the lead because we, we had such limited resources. We had a $5,000 production budget, and only two days to shoot it. It was not the most ideal way to make a film of this kind. So we had to really push it. I had a great crew and we were really prepared, but I would love to be able to be like in a big house, like this big house overlooking like a mountainside or a beach or something. You know, I really want to have like something where everything feels bigger and we can really spend more time with her. We can also spend more time with her when she can speak still. So we have a little bit more of what's happening internally with her. I just felt like I had to like really catch people up with like, a 10-year history in two minutes to set up the first act. So yeah, I, I would love to make it into a feature if anyone's ever interested in giving me the money to do so. 
<laughs> so so producers told you that they wish it were longer like did they not know why it was not longer like is, <laughs> they're trying to understand like the lack of self-awareness of making that statement to you yeah i mean you know producers will sometimes be like this is the greatest thing i've ever i've ever read and then like you're like cool do you want to fund it they're like no um, no, you know, that's just how it is. You know, you, I have no idea as someone who's a producer himself, I get it to a certain degree. Sometimes you're like, this is just, isn't my wheelhouse. I don't have the money for this right now, but you know, sometimes you're just like, could you come on? I'm ready. I'm ready to go. You know, it's, it's always trying to just, you feel like the orphan Oliver just holding out like a bowl, like more, please, like, please can I have some more. And you're just hoping someone gives you more so you can just make the next project. <laughs> That's wild. So you raised money on GoFundMe. What made you decide to utilize that particular service? <laughs> uh, because I was broke. <laughs> you, you know, I, I'm a big, I, I'm a big guy to say, I really think if you can pay for it yourself out of pocket, do so. And most projects that I've ever made, including a feature film, were funded completely out of pocket like are almost completely out of pocket. I, I don't use crowdfunding very often. This was actually the first short film I've ever used crowdfunding for, but I just been laid off by my job. I, it was the first time in 10 years that I didn't really have like, oh, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I, my, it was my birthday weekend when I got laid off. So a great, great time to get laid off. <laughs> Wait, so your boss knew it was your birthday and was like, yeah, and you know, wow. it's, it's it's just it, no disrespect. He was a great guy, you know. He is a great guy, but he it just that's when the money ran out, and it just happened to run out the week of my birthday, and so he was just like, "Hey, man, you know this this department's getting shut down. Like, sorry." And I went over to my grandmother's house, and I'm thinking she's calling me over because you know it's my birthday week, and maybe she wants to do something, and. I just told her I'd gotten laid off and she was like, yes, I know. I called you over here so I could talk with you one-on-one face-to-face and say, if you don't go for it in the freelance world, if you don't go for it and try to make something of your filmmaking career right now, why are you even in LA? <laughs> I was like, like, basically just like, hey, if you're not going to take this seriously now, you have a chance right now to do something with this free time. And if you don't take it, just get out of the city. Forget trying to become a, a filmmaker. Like it's never going to happen if you don't try it now. And I was like, oh, well, thank you, Grandma. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it, it was. It was. So you know, I didn't have any money, so I had to go fund me, and I, I cashed in every chip that I have with people from all the years of support and helping them for free on some of their projects and everything. I was like, I need money to get this done. Some people had to be paid, obviously. Some people were so kind to volunteer their time, and we got it done. We had two days and $5,000 rubbed together and somehow made it work. I love that so much. And so GoFundMe was a site that you would make sure that you could utilize all the funds where say Kickstarter, Seed and Spark had like goals that you had to make. Was that maybe part of the rationale of using GoFundMe is that you were automatically going to receive all the funds? Yeah. You know, Seed and Spark, it was like, if I don't make it, I, I don't get the money. And then it will be the fall. And I have to start all over again and ask people to give again. And sometimes that works. But for this, I was like, you know, I don't need a lot. I needed 8000 to make the movie because 3000 needed to go to SAG workers comp and insurance because we were using stunts, guns, knives. And then the rest obviously went to actually what you see on the screen. 
And it was just kind of like, hey, even if I don't make it all the way to 8,000, I can find a way to fill in the gaps here and pay for this film, even whether it's out of pocket, whatever it needs to be. I mean, I was on food stamps at the time. So I used some of my food stamp money to buy large, like food for the crafty table and everything. You know, I was, I was doing whatever it took to, to fill the gaps with what people had given me. I didn't want to let them down. So <laughs> that's such a cool story. Uh, that's amazing, Matthew. So I, I get the sense that there's a few gateways like Vimeo for short films to attract a wide audience. Festivals that show shorts say that they're broke and filmmakers can go broke on Film Freeway applying for like two or three films. And it's obvious you've made a lot of connections in the film industry. So what do you think needs to change to make art like this more widely available? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I, I think to really change this system, it, it everything is too money-based. There's way too much that's money-based. And I get it, you know, I understand that these film festivals need the money and they need the cash to put everything up to get the rental space and all that jazz. But a, a lot of how the film festival circuit goes is, in my opinion, I don't want to say predatory, that seems too strong of a word, but it's certainly taking advantage of idealistic filmmakers and naive filmmakers because you have these people spending fifty, hundred dollars, you know, sometimes more to submit stuff, but then they gotta get to the festival, they gotta be a part of it. And then you get to these festivals and it plays it on the screen and who's in the audience? Oh, it's just the people who worked on the film, which is fine. But you know, I can rent out a theater and probably spend less money than it costs to enter some of these festivals to like show a 10 minute film, to show a 15 minute film. Heck, I could get some of my buddies together and we could just invite all of our friends together and all, everyone pitches in a hundred bucks and then we rent out an AMC room for like like an, a 90 minute block. You know, I, it's a lot of these film festivals and for me, if you're gonna have a film festival, it's more than just the ego of, I didn't see my movie on the big screen. It's also, I need people from the industry to actually be here. Someone who can, who knows someone should be here. And so when you have a film festival and they have like a screening at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, well, who's that for? Who's going to see that? You know, maybe, I mean, maybe I don't want to, you know, maybe they know something I don't know. But typically speaking, when I go to those festivals and I look around and I talk to people in the room, there's, there's not a lot of people there who are willing to hand out cash on these like low level, mid budget film festivals. So I think they need to be a little bit more honest with what these uh, festivals are providing and it's you know it's much more of a sandbox type of mentality you're going to uh, get out of it what you put into it and i think there just needs to be more of a focus on how do we get the younger filmmakers without resources or limited resources how do we get them on set how do we get their movies and their short films made and their feature films made because right now unless you're like a nepo baby or like independently wealthy or basically win the lottery, it's almost impossible to be able to even do weekend warrior projects. Most people in LA can't even afford to live in their one bedroom apartments, let alone save up enough money to make a, a short film, or you, especially if you have to pay people to be a part of it. So I, I just think there needs to be much more of a, a concerted effort for avenues and grants and programs for people to kind of cut their teeth as they try to go up this ladder. Wow. That, that's amazing. So 
If your hopes come true, where can people see Bloody Bloody Coda? Ooh, yeah, right now I'm in the festival uh, process, been sending it out to film festivals, um, hoping that some of them say yes. But if you want to know, you know, obviously people can follow me on my social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson is Hyde, H-Y-D-E. And, you know, of course, the moment it, I find out in a film festival, I'll be posting a lot about it. But I, I would like to get into a film festival on a personal level. Bloody Code has already been successful for me. Like it's gotten me work. It's gotten me direct a job where this past January, I directed a horror feature film because someone saw the rough cut of Bloody Coda. And my reels gotten me awesome. now to you know, direct on some horror and thriller projects. So it's it's done already quite a bit for myself. And then now at this point, I just really wanted to have a, some festival runs so it can raise my profile, of course, but it's really more about the cast and the crew. I, I want them to have something where they can go and invite their people and say, hey, look what I did. Aren't, isn't this cool? I would love to work on more projects like this. <laughs> That's phenomenal, Matthew. So if you could be James Cameron to someone out there, what would you tell them? Oh, man. I would just say that, you know, it, Keep working on your craft. If, if you want to be a writer, keep writing. doesn't matter. Finish a draft. I'm a firm believer that your script does not count until you have hit the fade the black on the last page or what, you know whatever it may be, the end on the last page. Like it's a, an incomplete first draft is nothing. It's words on a page. When it's a complete draft, even if it's a terrible draft, now it's a script. And until you do that, you're not you're not a screenwriter. You are an aspiring screenwriter. Once you've written that, you are. And so the same thing goes with filmmaking, with whatever you want to do. However it needs to be, get that experience. Because until you've done it, it's all talk. And the more you push yourself and the more you get those experiences, the more you're going to get a respect for the craft itself. And you're going to get a respect for your own talents. And then you will be able to get into those rooms and hold your head up high and say, I know what I'm doing pay me correctly, and let me cook. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great advice. And Matthew, before we conclude, do you have an indie film or director that you'd like to highlight? Man, you know, and you told me about this before we got on, and I, I went through like a list, but I'm, I don't, I know I've given a lot of long answers now, so I'm not going to give a lot, <laughs> but I, uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful uh, filmmaker named Nikata Jusu. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. I, I watched a couple of videos where people were pronouncing it. But um, Nikatia Jusu, she made a really great short film called uh, Suicide by Sunlight. It's about a black vampire. It's a short film. You can watch it on YouTube right now. I think she's an amazing filmmaker. I think there's a lot you can learn from it. It's like about a 15-minute short film. Watch that. See what she does with the camera and the performances and what she does with a, a fairly modest short film budget. And I think you're going to be impressed and learn a lot. Awesome. I am so grateful for your insight for indie filmmaking. And I think there'll be people listening to this who learn a lot about the process, film festivals, the struggle that it takes to get things on the screen. Thank you so much for being on the First Time Go podcast. Thanks for listening to the First Time Go podcast. The goal is to make life a little easier for independent creators. So if you're with me for that, give the pod a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Early access to episodes and other subscription benefits 
are available on Red Circle, Patreon, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to be highlighted on the show, please send an email to firstgopod at gmail.com. And let's help creators get their first time go. Thank you.